You might not know this, but there are shocking signs everywhere we go. Shocking signs, which are actually designed to protect us from uh, being shocked. (laughs) That's right. For example, you know there's a sign near a fountain in Shanghai, China, which actually reads, please do not touch the water here to prevent electric shock. And so this, this sign itself isn't shocking. It's, it's the water in the fountain that's actually shocking. But the sign is designed to keep you from being shocked. I saw another sign that contains the warning, danger, do not wet. Electrical shock can occur. So the sign's fine until you get it wet. And then all of a sudden it becomes a shocking sign. Uh, the, the, there's uh, my favorite shocking sign, which includes an old electric company mascot. Its name, it was named uh, Ready Kilowatt. And ready kilowatt appears to be accosting a child here uh, while the warning on the sign reads, remember kids, electricity can kill you. And it can, so it's a good warning for everyone. We need these shocking signs everywhere that there's the possibility of being shocked. And whenever we come across these sorts of uh, warning signs, you know, it's good for us to pay attention and to recognize the potential danger that exists somewhere near this sign. Well, it's in a similar yet spiritual way that we should also recognize the danger which is associated with the shocking signs of the second coming. Yeah, there are shocking signs that point us to the second coming of Christ Jesus. And while there are too many to cover this morning, uh, as we make our way through the study today, I'm going to share three with you. First of all, we're going to consider the shocking sign of the second coming, which includes spiritual corruption. The second shocking sign uh, that we'll consider today, well, it's sexual perversion. And then thirdly, the shocking sign of the second coming also includes shameful devotion. Well, with this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 17. Here we find Christ Jesus continuing to describe the days which will lead up to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as you're making your way to the 17th chapter of Luke's gospel account... I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that it was in our study last week. That's when we learned uh, about the account that that Luke recorded when, when Christ Jesus presented his disciples with some introductory information about his second coming. And, and he described his return as being unpredictable and unmistakable and unavoidable. And after that, the Lord then shifts the attention of his disciples to the shocking signs which will be seen before the second advent of Christ Jesus. And with this as the focus, I want to consider the first sign, which is the widespread spiritual corruption that will take place here on the planet. With that, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 17. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 26. Here the Lord Jesus declares, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now here in these verses we find Christ Jesus, he's comparing the time of his second coming to the days of Noah. 
And as we consider this comparison, we should take a moment to, to consider here how, how, how the world right now is actually filled with skeptics who are quick to insist that, well, the story of Noah, it's just, it's just an allegory. It's, it's just a, a fable that's designed to present us with moral truths. And these, yeah, there, there are many secular skeptics who are quick to insist that the biblical account of the flood is nothing more than a fictional fable. They're way too smart to believe in that. What's even worse is that the church is now filled with Christians who have embraced the skepticism of these secular scholars uh, who have rejected the historical authenticity of the Old Testament stories like Noah and the flood. And as a result, there are many Christians who no longer believe in the historical reliability of the stories that we find in the Old Testament. How sad is that? And if this is something that you've personally wrestled with, then I just want to draw your attention to uh, a, 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 an important argument that can help you to settle this because the Lord Jesus Christ constantly confirmed the historicity of the Old Testament stories. Now, if anybody knows about the past, it's the incarnate son of God. If anybody can tell us whether these stories are allegory and fables and these sorts of things, or whether it's true history, well, the Lord Jesus is the one to know. So we ought to take his word for it rather than some secular scholar. With that, I would point out just a few examples of where the Lord Jesus confirmed the Old Testament. For example, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus confirmed the creation account which is found in the book of Genesis. That's right. Those who try to tell us that it was was Big Bang and, you know, evolution and all these. No, no. Jesus confirms the creation account found in Genesis. Not only that, but it's in Matthew chapter 19 where Jesus confirms the existence of the first two humans on the planet, that being Adam and Eve. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus confirmed the historical account of Jonah and the great fish. And here in Luke 17, we find Christ Jesus confirming the historicity of both Noah and the global flood. As a matter of fact, look with me again here, beginning at uh, verse 26 of Luke 17. It's there where Jesus declares, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the son of man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Here Christ Jesus is clearly confirming the biblical account of Noah as well as the flood that destroyed everyone outside of the ark. Not only that, but he was also drawing a comparison to the historical days of Noah and the future days which will culminate in the second coming of Christ Jesus. And so based on just what Jesus is saying here, if you're going to reject the historicity of Noah, well, then you also have to reject the idea that Christ will return. Conversely, if you believe that Jesus Christ is going to return, well, then you better believe in the days of Noah as well, because the days of Noah, well, they're comparable to the days of Christ's second coming. And while it's true here that the Lord was presenting a brief description of those days when Noah was living upon the earth, well, it's also important for us to realize that there's so much more to the story than what Jesus covers here in our text today. In order to prove my point, I want to consider Moses' account, which can be found in the book of Genesis. So if you would hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Now, as you're making your way to the sixth chapter of Genesis, I just want to take a moment to point out that the Lord Jesus was speaking to his disciples. These were Jewish men who grew up learning the Old Testament, and they were well acquainted with the entirety of the story surrounding Noah. 
And it was common for rabbis in this day and age to uh, comment partially on an Old Testament story uh, and then assume that the audience is taking in the full context of what they were talking about. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He comments briefly on the days of Noah, realizing that his audience is well aware of everything that we're about to read here in Genesis chapter 6. So look with me here at Genesis 6. I want to draw your attention to verse 1. Here Moses writes, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward. And when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Now, here in these interesting verses, we find Moses, he's describing the days that, uh, that unfolded before the earth was flooded with water. And during these days, according to Moses, the sons of God came and took wives from the daughters of men. Interesting. What does that mean? Well, as we consider this strange statement, it seems to me that, you know, this is what Jesus was referring to back in Luke 17 when he referred to the marriages that were taking place all the way up until the time of the flood. And so as we look back at these marriages to see, well, what kind of marriages are we talking about? And why would, why would God judge the world because of marriage? Well, here in Genesis, we see that it's some sort of unnatural marriage between the sons of God who some scholars believe to be the fallen angels and these human women. Not only that, but the people who were here on the planet during these days uh, appear to be completely given over to every evil desire. As a matter of fact, uh, let's continue to make our way through, through uh, Genesis chapter 6. If you will, let's pick up our study uh, beginning at verse 5. Here Moses writes, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now from this, we can see here that the humans who were here on the earth during, during the days of Noah, they were completely committed to their pursuit of every evil desire. The wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And while Moses doesn't go into great detail here about the nature of this widespread wickedness, what we can say for certain is that the wickedness of this world was so pervasive, it was so profound, that the Lord was ready to just remove mankind from the face of the earth. Now, that's incredible. What in the world is happening that God would think, I, I've got to destroy everything here? Well, in order to grasp the reason for this genocide, let's pick up our study of Genesis 6, beginning at verse 8. Here Moses declares, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
The earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for, notice, all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence through them and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, as we consider this account, we must not fail to notice the contrast between two important words. There's the word perfect, which is found in verse 9. And then there's the word corrupt and corrupted, which is found there in verse 12. With that, look with me again at verse 9. There we learn that Noah was not only a just man, but he was perfect in his generations. And this has to do with his genealogy. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect. Perfect spiritually? He was sinless? No. We know that can't be the case because the scriptures are perfectly clear. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's perfect standard. So we know that Noah uh, was a sinner just like the rest of us. And yet he was perfect in his generations. His genealogy was perfect. Interesting, especially in contrast to the word corruption, which we find there in verse 12. That word corruption where, God, where Moses writes, God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. That word corrupt and corrupted is translated from a Hebrew word, which was used of that which is ruined and spoiled and perverted. Therefore, when Moses tells us that all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth, well, he seems to be saying here that the entire world had been spoiled. And the reason why is because the physical flesh, the flesh of the human race had been perverted. How so? Well, consider the contrast to the perfect genealogy of Noah. Noah had a perfect genealogy and the rest of mankind, their flesh, had been corrupted through the interaction with these fallen angels, these sons of God. And if you'll allow me to engage in just a little sanctified speculation here, it seems to me that the marriages that the Lord Jesus was referring to back in Luke 17 were actually these unnatural relationships that Moses describes here in Genesis chapter 6. Here we learn that, that, he, you know, the, that, that the sons of God... They took wives from the daughters of men. And when Moses tells us that the daughters of men then bore children for these sons of God, well, it it could be that the fallen angels were actually using the wombs of women to create some sort of genetically modified race of giants, which became known as Nephilim. One reason I, I, I you know, think in this, uh, in this sort of direction is because you know, human men and human women don't tend to create something different that needs to be named something like Nephilim, right? So there's some sort of odd procreation happening here, and yet I, I have a hard time believing that fallen angels can literally procreate with humans. And yet would they have enough information to engage in some sort of genetic modification through artificial insemination? Well, we can do it today. Humans can do that. Why wouldn't we think that fallen angels couldn't do that? If that's the case, then there's also reason for us to believe that the people who were here during the days of Noah were not only, you know, uh, being uh, engaging in marriages with these, you know, fallen angels, but it appears that these fallen angels were somehow creating some hybrid 
you know, some sort of genetically modified offspring using the wombs of women. And not only were they being corrupted physically, as the flesh of all men was corrupted here on the earth, but they were also being corrupted spiritually as the people began to worship these fallen angels and their offspring, the Nephilim, who I believe uh, it's it's the uh, historical basis for the Titan legends that were later told. Now, with all this in mind, I want to uh, appeal to an extra biblical book, which I don't believe is, you know, spirit-inspired, but I do believe it's interesting. It's the book of Enoch, and it's in Enoch chapter 19, where we read this. Here shall stand the angels who have connected themselves with women, and their spirits, assuming many different forms, are defiling mankind, and shall lead them astray into sacrificing to demons as gods." In other words, according to this extra biblical book that I do not endorse as I don't think Enoch belongs in the Bible or that it's spiritually inspired, but it is interesting commentary on the beliefs of this period of time. And according to this, uh, according to this 19th chapter of Enoch, these fallen angels were causing some sort of physical corruption and not just physical corruption, but also spiritual corruption as they led the people to worship demons. Uh, another account can be found in uh, 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 Justin Martyr's second apology. Now, Justin Martyr is a second century uh, apologist. He was a Christian. And, and here's how he weighs in on this. And I quote, but the angels transgressed this appointment and were captivated by love of women and begot children who are those that are called demons. And besides, they afterwards subdued the human race to themselves, partly by magical writings and partly by fears and the punishments they occasioned, and partly by teaching them to offer sacrifices and incense and libations, of which things they stood in need after they were enslaved by lustful passions, and among men they sowed murders, wars, adulteries, intemperate deeds, and all wickedness. Now, as we consider the writing of Justin Martyr here. I'll remind you, this is a Christian apologist from the early second century. And according to Justin Martyr, there were these fallen angels during the days of Noah who were somehow impregnating women and and they were guilty of corrupting the physical flesh of the human race. And to what degree, I don't know, but we do know that there's some, you know, some sort of modified hybrid known as Nephilim that brought God to the point where he's saying, all flesh is corrupted. I got I to gotta destroy everything. And not only were they guilty of corrupting the flesh of the human race, but those fallen angels were also leading them into the spiritual corruption of idolatry as they led the human race to worship them by presenting them with magical incantations and by leading them to offer sinful sacrifices, which I have no doubt included child sacrifice. As we consider all of this about the days of Noah, I should remind you of the point that the Lord Jesus was actually making back in Luke chapter 17. There we learn that the days of the Son of Man will be like the days that led up to the flood. There's a comparison between the days of Noah to the days of the second coming of Christ. And with that being the case, I can't help but to wonder, will the days that lead up to the second coming of Christ include some sort of invasion of fallen angels? And if so, what would that look like? 
Should we expect there to be an invasion of fallen angels who begin to use the wombs of women to create genetically modified, you know, creatures? If so, then what would this look like? How would this take place? And how would this be accepted and, and even embraced by this scientifically minded culture in which we live? I'm guessing we've all seen the signs in the yards of those who give their statement of faith on these colorful signs in the front yards. And one of the things they say is, we believe in science. Well, the, the science we believe in, we believe in that science, not, not the other science, not, not the science that we disagree with. But they believe in science. That's one of the, the, the big statements of faith that they want you to believe. How will these scientifically minded people accept something like an like a invasion of fallen angels? Is it possible that fallen angels are going to masquerade as aliens from outer space? Is that a possibility? You might not know this, but I mean, a large percentage of Americans have, you know, they claim to have seen UFOs. But, but what's even more intriguing to me is that there's a recent poll that has revealed that 6% of Americans claim to have been abducted by aliens. Think about that for a moment. I mean, 6% of America, that's, that's a lot of people. 6% of Americans claim to have been abducted by aliens. And according to the testimonies of many of these people who have claimed to have been abducted by aliens, Many of them talk about these extraterrestrials being interested in extracting their sperm from, from the men and impregnating women through artificial insemination. There's many women today who share testimonies about being impregnated uh, after abduction. Now, I'm not here to endorse or deny their testimony. I, I don't know if they're making stuff up or if this is something they've truly experienced. But what I do find interesting is that there are many who are beginning to believe that these extraterrestrials are actually attempting to produce some sort of human-alien hybrid, which is better suited for the climate change that's before us. I'll think about that for a moment. You know, we're being led to believe we're headed into this climate change that's going to wipe out mankind. These aliens come along and say, yeah, but we can help. Just let us engage in a little genetic manipulation here. Let let us, you know, give you some gene therapy, maybe through this injection, you know, and and we'll get you set up and prepared for climate change. Interesting. If it's true that the aliens who are allegedly abducting people are actually fallen angels who are masquerading as these kind-hearted extraterrestrials who just want to help Elliot, you know, figure out his life. Listen. These aliens who are coming along and wanting to help us evolve so that we can be prepared for climate change. Listen, they're not, they're not coming along and providing us with cures for COVID. They're not giving us cures for cancer. No, they're wanting to create human-alien hybrids. Doesn't that remind you of what was happening in the days of Noah? And as, you know, benevolent as they claim to be, I'm here to tell you, fallen angels aren't here to help. They're here to kill and steal and destroy the human race through physical and spiritual corruption. And according to Jesus, the closer we get to the time of his return, well, that's the more we should start seeing what was happening in the days of Noah unfolding before our very eyes. We should expect to see more and more people having interactions with 
fallen angels who are probably masquerading as aliens. And the aliens, well, they're going to lead people to worship demons and, and, and engage in violence and engage in all manner of sin, even to the point where the world will embrace child sacrifice. Is that happening today? Has the world embraced child sacrifice? Well, you know, it certainly seems like we're getting closer and closer to a point where post-birth abortion is becoming more and more acceptable. And, uh, you know, this is shocking to consider. And that's why I've titled this the shocking signs of the second coming. Not the easy to believe and palatable signs, but these are the shocking signs of the second coming, which include widespread spiritual corruption as more and more people begin to embrace these aliens who are coming to help. And not only do the shocking signs of the second coming include spiritual corruption, but listen, the shocking signs of the second coming will also include sexual perversion. And in order to prove my point, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 17. Here we find the Lord Jesus now recounting uh, another, uh, another historical record. Uh, he's pointing back to the day when the Lord destroyed Sodom. And with that, let's pick up our study of Luke 17, beginning at verse 28. Here the Lord Jesus declares, Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, Will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed? In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Now here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus now presenting the people with another parallel. And this time it's between the days of Lot and the days that lead up to the second coming of Christ. There there is a comparison here as well. With that, it'll help you to know that Lot was actually the son of Abraham's brother, Haddon. And, and in Genesis chapter 11, we learn that Haddon died uh, before Abraham left the land of Ur. And, and so uh, shortly thereafter then, Lot decides that he's going to go with his uncle Abraham as, as they depart for the land of promise. And seeing how Abraham at this point in time was still childless, I'm going to guess that you know, Abraham treated ne- you know, his nephew Lot like, like his own son. And so they traveled together from Ur to the land of promise. And after arriving in the land of Canaan, you know, Abraham encouraged Lot to choose the land that he wanted for his own herds. And, and so he's trying to divide up the land here and he's just letting Lot, uh, you know, have first choice. And according to Moses, Lot chose for himself all the plain of the Jordan while Abraham decided to dwell in the land of Canaan. And we also learned that Lot then dwelt in, you know, in there in the plains and he pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. So he takes all the land even leading up to the city of Sodom. Sadly, it was, wasn't long before he decided, well, I'm just going to go ahead and live in Sodom. You know, you know, it's so much easier than building a new house. Might as well just move into Sodom, buy a house, and then raise my kids there. Well, it wasn't long after 
arriving in Sodom, when he you know, discovered that the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and, 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 and engaging in all manner of sin. And, and while it's true that the Lord Jesus briefly mentions the way that the people of Sodom there were simply going about their daily lives until the day when the fire and the brimstone rained down upon them. Listen, uh, you know, the, the disciples that he was speaking to about this, they were well aware of the greater context regarding the real reason for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, in order to grasp the sort of wickedness that the men of Sodom were actually engaging in, we should take some time to consider the historical account that Moses presents us with in the book of Genesis. So hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, and let's turn back to the book of Genesis. I'd like you to turn to Genesis chapter 19. As you make your way to the 19th chapter of Genesis, I should just take a moment to point out that the sinfulness of Sodom was so great that the Lord decided that he needed to go send two angels to warn Lot so that you know, Lot and his family might escape from the destruction that the Lord had already determined to pour out on the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And with this context in mind, let's consider the arrival of these two angels there in the city of Sodom. It's here in Genesis chapter 19. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1. Here Moses writes, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly. So they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now, before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. And here in these verses, we learn about the sort of sexual perversion that the men of Sodom were actually engaging in. And and Moses tells us that this was all the men from every quarter of the city, both old and young. They were all, uh, you know, uh, taking part in, in this, you know, what I would just sum up as a gang rape or an attempted gang rape. This depraved decision to engage in this gang rape of these strangers only goes to show the sexual perversion that had been accepted by all the men there in Sodom. This sexual perversion I'm referring to, well, it's since become known as sodomy, and for good reason. The men of Sodom were so wicked, they saw no problem with this plan to go and rape these two strangers. I don't know if they knew they were angels or not, but there's no doubt that the sexual perversion of Sodom was, was widespread. And, and, and listen, I believe also that it was something that affected the moral compass of Lot. As a matter of fact, let's take another look here at Genesis chapter 19. If you would look with me there at verse 6. Here we learn that Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind them, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See, now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please, Let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. Here in these verses, we find Lot. He's attempting to save these strangers from these sodomites. 
And he did this by offering up his own two virgin daughters. I, 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 every time I read this, I, I'm just, I'm just, I don't even know what to say. It, it's mind-blowing to consider that Lot was so far gone. He, he, he was so far corrupted in his moral compass that he couldn't you know, see the problem with this decision. And I have to assume, like, like to give him the benefit of the doubt, maybe he just thought that this would be a distraction, that these men wouldn't even want to be a part of this. And, and I, I can only imagine that this father who's ready to sacrifice his daughters in this sort of way knew that these men wanted nothing to do with these two girls. So it's possible that he was just giving these angels time to escape or something, maybe. But even if Lot knew for certain that this attempt to appease this angry mob of men would be rejected and and that his daughters weren't really in any danger, you know, we can also be certain, though, that Lot's moral compass was so damaged by the sexual sexual perversions there in Sodom that he would even imagine such such a a solution. In order to further grasp my point, let's, let's consider... What Moses writes here in Genesis 19, I want to focus your attention there at verse 9. Here we find the angry mob declaring, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and came near to break down the door. Now, uh, here in this verse, we find these sodomites there describing Lot as an intolerant bigot who was always judging them. And that's where we find Lot at the beginning of the chapter. He's at the gate of the city acting as a judge and as did you know, many elders of most cities in this period of time. But, but he was sitting there at the gate as a judge when the angels came up. And so no doubt that you know, he was there to try to you know, bring some level of justice to the city of Sodom, probably because this is where he's raising his kids. And yet he also attempts to appease them with what he considered to be a lesser sin, which would be the rape of his daughters. And in this way, he's attempting to appease these people. Were they appeased? No. They weren't appeased by this compromise. They were only angered. And they turned their anger towards Lot and basically accused him of being a judgmental bigot. Now, we we recognize that, you know, Lot, it was a man of faith. Peter even described Lot as a righteous man who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. We know that Lot was a man of faith, and yet we find him here compromising in order to fit in with this wicked world. And with that, I I just encourage every Christian to be careful. If you think that compromising your life and your family is going to appease the sodomites, it never will. But your moral compass will continue to slide. And it's sad to say that the moral compass of Lot ultimately affected his family and in many unfortunate ways that we don't have time to get into today. But what we do know is that there came a day when Lot finally led his family out of Sodom at the encouragement of the angels. And according to Jesus, it was on that day when it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed everyone still there in Sodom and Gomorrah. And let's not forget Christ Jesus was actually drawing a comparison here between the days of Lot and the days which will lead up to his second coming. And with that being the case, it's important to understand that 
the days that will lead up to the second coming of Christ will also include sexual perversions of unrepentant people. This will become so commonplace that those who dare to speak out against it will be labeled intolerant bigots, just like Lot. In order to prove my point, I want to consider something that Paul wrote in the letter that he sent to the church in Rome. If you would continue holding your place here in the Gospel of Luke, let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 1. And as you make your way to the first chapter of Romans, I just want to take a moment to point out that we're currently living in this day and age when those who speak out against the sin of sodomy end up quickly socially shunned by those who are quick to insist that this sort of anger, this sort of speech is hate speech, and it's unloving, and it's intolerant to criticize the, 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 the style of sex that is enjoyed by those who belong to the LGBTQIA plus community. You're not allowed to speak out against these people and you're not allowed to say anything critical of these things. And one argument given is because, well, this is just how they were born. You can't criticize someone for the way that they were born. Well, what about the people, you know, who were born with a proclivity towards murdering other people? You know, murderers be murdering. Well, what if they were just born this way? Can we say that their lifestyle is wrong? Listen, we were all born this way. What do I mean? We were all born with fallen flesh. We're all born with a sin nature. Does that mean that I should have the right to pursue whatever sins that, that I was born to enjoy? Or am I expected to deny sin? Just because a person is born with personal proclivities towards one thing or another doesn't mean that we should accept something that the scriptures call sin. And yet, based on this line of reasoning that they were born this way, so to say something bad against it is, is hate speech, you know, based on this reasoning, there are legislators now all over the world who are determined to criminalize anything they deem to be hate speech, which is just any speech that they think is based in hate. And you better believe that if these laws are passed here in America, then any pastor who properly exegetes Romans chapter 1 is going to be found guilty of committing this high crime of hate speech. To prove my point, let's consider what Paul is writing here in Romans chapter 1. Look with me here. He's talking about people living in sin, and it's beginning at verse 24 where Paul uh, writes about those that God has given up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchange the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Vile passions. What kind of vile passions is he talking about? He says here, for even their women exchanged the natural use of what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which is due. Paul here is assuring the Christians here at the church in Rome that according to God's design, the sexual relationship is only supposed to occur between a biological man and a biological woman whom he has married. 
those who choose to follow after their lustful desires, those who choose to pursue their vile passions, pursuing same-sex relationships or any other kind of sexual uh, activity that's outside of a biological man and a biological woman who are married, anything outside of that is a vile passion. And according to Paul, these people who engage in these things without repentance will eventually suffer the punishment that the Lord has promised to pour out on the day when the Lord Jesus returns and judges the world in righteousness. Now I realize this might sound like hate speech. Some might say that this is nothing more than hate speech, and yet I can assure you right now that there is no hatred in my heart for those in the LGBTQIA plus community. I hold no hatred for them at all. No, instead, it's the love of Christ that compels me to warn the world about the day of judgment when fire and brimstone will rain down from heaven just like the day when the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And while the rainbow is God's promise that he won't flood the earth again, he's not going to destroy the earth again with a flood. But on the day when the fire falls... The rainbow flag will save nobody. And so we need to warn the world about this. Because we hate them? No. Because we love them. And want them to be saved. Sadly, there are many Christians who are attempting to fit in with this world, you know, like Lot. They're allowing the world around us to determine our moral compass. And, and, and our moral compass, and many Christians, the moral compass is, is not pointing true north. And if that sounds like you, I encourage you to remember that we've been called to warn the world about the day of judgment so that every sinner, regardless of the kind of sins they're they're engaged in, the Lord wants to save every sinner before the time of his second coming. From this, we see the shocking signs of the second coming. They include the spiritual corruption of widespread worship of of demons and, and, and you know, false angel, fallen angels. Not only that, but the shocking signs of the second coming also include an increase of sexual perversion as more and more people pursue their vile passions. And thirdly, the shocking signs of the second coming include a shameful devotion to sinful desires. And in order to explain what I mean by this, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 17. Here we find the Lord Jesus reminding his disciples about the death of Lot's wife. Let's pick up our study here of Luke 17, beginning at verse 32, where the Lord Jesus declares, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. Now here in these verses, we find Jesus reminding his disciples about the death of Lot's wife. And just for the sake of clarity, it's in Genesis 19 where we learn about the day when the angels, they led Lot by the hand and his family out of Sodom so that they might be saved from the fire and the brimstone. And and as the fire and brimstone rained down from heaven upon the sinful cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, Lot's wife disobeyed the angels. The angel said, don't look back. Don't turn back. But she looked back. And, and, it, and it's not like, well, she just kind of looked over her shoulder as she was running. No. She looked back with a broken heart as she mourned over the city and the sins that she loved. It was her shameful devotion to Sodom and the sins of Sodom that caused her to start lagging behind. Yeah, she slowed down. She stopped. She looked back longingly. And according to Moses, she was turned into a pillar of salt. 
Now, it might interest you to know that, you know, some biblical archaeologists actually believe that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah actually took place there in the area of the Dead Sea. Some insist that the foundations of Sodom and Gomorrah are probably located underneath the waters of the Dead Sea, which in my opinion is just one more reason to not go and sit in that water. A lot of people want to go sit and float in the Dead Sea and it's just disgusting. So much salt. Not only that, but listen, there is a southeast corner of the Dead Sea where we find a salt rock plug, which is known as Mount Sodom. And it's there on the slopes of Mount Sodom where we actually find strange formations of salt that look like pillars. Interesting. Some even speculate that one of them is possibly Lot's wife. I think it's that one right there. But we don't, we don't know. Who can say for sure except the Lord? But it is interesting that in the very area that you know, this story unfolded that we do find pillars of salt. But what's even more important than that is this, that the lesson that the Lord was teaching here in Luke 17 is something that we really need to get our minds around here. Notice with me again there in verse 32 here, Jesus declares, remember Lot's wife. Remember what happened to Lot's wife. Remember that it was her love for the city of Sodom and the sins that were happening there. It was her desire for those things. It was her her shameful devotion that, that she was unwilling to repent of that led to her untimely demise. And that's why Jesus says in verse 33, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I like the way that the scholars who created the New Living Translation rendered verse 33. They put it like this. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. And if you let your life go, you will save it. In other words, those who will repent of their sins, those who will let go of the sinful desires that they have so that they can trust in Jesus Christ, they will find true life. Before I placed my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I was loving my, my life of sin, so to speak. I, I, I didn't want to let that go. And I'm so thankful that the Lord brought me to that place where I finally was just realizing that all of this stuff is just destroying my life. And while I couldn't imagine on that side of salvation that my life would be so much better walking with the Lord, I'm here to tell you on this side of salvation, it's so much better. My life in the Lord is so much better. By by losing the life that I had before Christ, by, by being willing to just let go of all of that, I've found true life in the Lord. Conversely, those who remain devoted to their life of depravity will end up suffering the consequences of their carnality. And just to be clear, the consequences of carnality include the condemnation that Christ Jesus has already determined for those who forego the forgiveness that he provides to those who trust in him. And it's sad to say that this shameful devotion to depravity will only become more commonplace as we get closer and closer to the second coming of Christ. In order to prove my point, I just want to consider something that John wrote in the book of Revelation. If you would turn with me to Revelation chapter 9, and as you make your way to the ninth chapter of Revelation, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the people who are here during the time of tribulation, they're going to suffer through the seven seal judgments, followed by the seven trumpets, 
which are then followed by the seven bowl judgments. I don't have the time to get into all of that this morning. I encourage you to go listen to my study through the book of Revelation, uh, and that way you can learn more about the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpets, and the, and the seven bowl judgments. It's here in Revelation 9, though. Here we learn about the days when those who are here during the sixth trumpet judgment, uh, you know, they're, they're going to experience a great deal of suffering because the sixth trumpet, when it's sounded, it results in four angels that bring three plagues that, which will kill a third of mankind. Now imagine that for a moment. Three plagues that kill a third of mankind. Do you think that the people who survive this will be brought to a place of repentance? Well, if so, you'd be wrong. As a matter of fact, look with me here at Revelation chapter 9. I want to draw your attention to verse 20. Here John declares, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. You would think these people that survived the the sixth trumpet judgment would wake up and realize, wow, we're really far off base. We need to repent and trust in Jesus. No, they will not repent. Rather than recognizing their need to repent so that they might be saved, they're going to continue to harden their hearts as they maintain a shameful devotion to depravity so that they can continue to worship their demons. And as a result, the demons will continue to lead them into more murders and sorcery and sexual immorality and theft. In order to grasp this shameful devotion to depravity during the time of tribulation, I just want to remind you about something that Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's here in 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning at verse 9, where Paul describes the rise of the Antichrist, calling him the lawless one here. And it's in verse 9 where he writes, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now here in these verses, Paul, he's describing this strong delusion that the Lord has promised to pour out on on those who prior to the rapture of the church, knew that they needed to trust in Jesus Christ, but rather than repenting and trusting in Jesus Christ, they remained shamefully devoted to their depravity and they rejected the, the, the truth. And, and it's for this reason that they, you know, after the rapture of the church occurs, God is going to send strong delusion so that they'll continue uh, down that same path until the day of their condemnation. That's right the people on this side of the rapture who know they need to turn to Jesus Christ and yet reject him will end up just living in strong delusion on the other side of the rapture. They won't get to the other side of the rapture and go, oh, the rapture just happened. I better get right with the Lord. Nope. They will not repent and they will continue down that path 
until the day of judgment when they will be condemned forevermore. Now, as I consider the signs, these shocking signs of the second coming, it seems to me that the day of Christ's second coming is getting closer and closer and closer. With that being the case, well, it only stands to reason then that the rapture of the church is even closer. Do I believe that there are people on the planet today who know they need Jesus Christ and yet are shamefully devoted to their depravity and as a result, they will see the rapture of the church and then enter into strong delusion on the other side? Yeah, I think that those people are alive today. That's just my conviction. You can disagree. But I do believe that there are people on the planet today who will live through the rapture of the church and end up suffering in strong delusion after the fact because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. With that, and as we begin to wrap up this study, it it seems clear to me that we are seeing these shocking signs of Christ's second coming. We clearly see the spiritual corruption of wicked worship as more and more people are open uh, to uh, interactions with fallen angels who are masquerading as aliens. And we're seeing more and more people given over to spiritual corruption as they embrace magic and and Ouija boards and the worship of demons and these sorts of things. Yeah, this is becoming more and more commonplace. I blame Harry Potter, but that's a whole nother issue. We also see an increase of sexual perversion as more and more people are pursuing their vile passions, you know, which, you know, is common to man. And yet more and more, the, the, those who speak out against sexual perversion, well, those are the ones who are being silenced and canceled and shunned. And that's becoming more commonplace as well. We're clearly watching more people rejecting Jesus with shameful devotion to their sinful desires. And with all of these things being the case, well, we know then that we are quickly approaching the time of Christ's return. With that being the case, I encourage every Christian, we need to follow the example of Noah. Noah became a preacher of righteousness. As he you know, built the ark and prepared for the flood, you know, people inevitably came by and thought, you know, what, what in the world's going on here? And I believe that Noah preached the truth and, and that he invited people to join him on the ark so that they could be saved. And you know how many converts Noah had? Zero. His family joined him. He saved a bunch of animals. But as he'd spent this time preaching the, the, the truth, no one followed him onto the ark. You know, I, I heard it said that, you know, Noah was a conspiracy theorist until the day it started raining. And the world rejected him until the day they found themselves drowning in a flood. And it's possible that as a Christian, you're, you're thinking, you know, I mean, what's the point in preaching? No one's going to believe me. Well, at what point in time is the result the reason for whether you should or not? Christ has called us to go into the world and, and, and proclaim the, the good news. The response of those that we preach to is between them and God. We're called to accomplish the Great Commission. We're called to preach the truth. We're called to present the gospel message, whether they receive it or not. 
And while I realize that the world is filled with people who are unwilling to receive the love of the truth, this doesn't, you know, this, this changes nothing about our commission, Christian. We've been called to sound the alarm so that some might be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And with this as the goal, I encourage you, let's step out in faith and let's become, like Noah, preachers of righteousness, not like Lot, who lived a life of compromise. Rather than compromising and allowing our moral compass to be corrupted by the wickedness around us, let's instead help the people around us to see the shocking signs of Christ's second coming so that they might wake up, so that they might turn from darkness to light, and so that they might realize that there's only one way for us to be saved from the wrath that's to come. And with all boldness, let's present them with the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins so that those who trust in him can be saved from the punishment that we deserve. Let's share with them the good news that those who trust in the cross of Christ will be saved from the righteous wrath of God, which the Lord Jesus is going to pour out on those who refuse to believe the shocking signs of his second coming. Let's pray.